You're listening to Qalam Institute's podcast series, Sirah, Life of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Qalam is pleased to announce the Khatib Training Workshop. Find out more at khatibworkshop.com. That's K-H-A-T-E-E-B workshop.com. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Asiratul Nabawiya. In the previous session, we were talking about the renovation of the Kaaba, and as we talked about last time, this occurred um, at the time in the majority of the uh, in the opinion of the majority of the scholars of Sira. This this occurred at the time uh, when the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam was 35 years old. So this occurred at the age of 35 uh, in the life of the Prophet And at that point in time, the Quraysh underwent a major project, a major renovation project of the Kaaba, al Kaaba to Sharifa. <clears throat> and we talked about some of the details of it. Uh, we talked about why that renovation was occurring, aside from just wear and tear. There's a couple of other narrations that tell us there was some flooding at that time. We also have some narrations telling us that there was also um, a break-in at the Kaaba. Somebody tried to loot uh, the Kaaba. And because of all these circumstances, basically, they, they decided it was high time that they underwent a major renovation uh, of the Kaaba. And we talked about some of the circumstances at that time. How there were some very miraculous events that took place. Some narrations tell us about some very miraculous things occurring at that time. And, you know, of course, as is the question a lot of times, as believers we have no problem believing in that, but maybe sometimes somebody might not, uh, might be a little skeptical about some of those things. But, you know, that's an issue of faith and that's an issue of Iman. And, you know, I was talking to a friend earlier today on the phone. And I told him, you know, we, we, we were just having a conversation and we were actually talking about, you know, he was mentioning the Sira lectures. And so I, I, what I told him was that if you've ever been to the Kaaba, if you've ever been to Baytullah, you've ever been to Mecca, you've visited the Kaaba, you really have no problem in believing in what we talked about in the previous session because it is such an unbelievable place. It has such a profound effect on a person. When you are in the presence of the Kaaba, you're in awe of that place and just of the of the of the Kaaba itself this is Baytullah and so you really don't have a problem in believing in those things so we talked about what happened and the major uh, outcome of those miraculous occurrences was that the primary major outcome was that the people of Mecca realized that this if they had if they had any doubts remaining about the sanctity and the how special of a place the Kaaba is they had no doubts remaining at this point in time and so they came to the conclusion that we need to go about the renovation of the Kaaba very carefully very cautiously and at the same time, we also need to make sure that we are very respectful in the renovating of the Kaaba. We will do it respectfully, little by little, bit by bit, piece by piece. And we will also make sure that any and all resources we put into the renovation of the Kaaba, they will be of the purest of nature. Meaning we're going to make sure that we don't put any type of you know, money that has been earned wrongfully or immorally, unethically, we will not be putting or investing any such money or wealth into the Kaaba. So that was the primary conclusion that they came to. Now they go about in the renovation of the Kaaba and 
Um, we talked about last time how, you know, there were some initial hesitation. They were very nervous because it was the Kaaba, but exactly what happened at that time. Uh, and they, you know, one of them, the very first one was, as we mentioned last time, last time, Utbat ibn Rabi'ah, um, he took the very first step. And, you know, when, when he was safe and everything was okay, then everybody else got motivated that to do so. And they figured, okay, inshallah, everything should be okay. The next thing that we also talked about was how they started getting into a fight. Who's going to renovate the Kaaba? And of course, at that time, again, they decided to distribute the, the, the areas of the Kaaba in, amongst different tribes and families. That, okay, the Quraysh will do this part, and they will do this part, and they will do that part. And they started renovating the Kaaba accordingly. I also mentioned at that time that... The Kaaba, and this is something we're going to talk about in more detail, but the Kaaba originally, before this renovation, was about six or seven meters high. And when they decided to renovate it, they decided to make it taller. They basically decided to double the length to about 16, uh, in some narrations say 18 meters high. So they decided to go more than double the height of the original Kaaba. And the one of the main reasons for this was because they wanted to move the door of the Kaaba up. They wanted to move the door of the Kaaba up, move it higher. And the reason for that was so that not anybody could get inside and not anybody could enter into it. But you would basically have to get a ladder and then you'd have to climb up it. And if somebody was going to go to all that lanes, if somebody was going to actually need a ladder and things like that, you would see them doing so. You'd be able to kind of catch them or see them. And nobody could basically sneak into the Kaaba or enter into it undetected. So this is what they decided to do at this time. Now, obviously, to make the Kaaba taller and to make the building higher required more money, more resources, more raw materials. And in doing so, what they didn't end up realizing was they didn't have enough resources. Because remember, there was one primary restriction. The restriction was, we're only going to put the purest, you know, cleanest of money and wealth into the renovation of the Kaaba. They ended up realizing they didn't have enough to actually finish the construction of the Kaaba. They didn't have enough to finish the construction of the Kaaba. So when we think of the Kaaba today, we think of a square. The original shape of the Kaaba was that it was straight on three sides and on one side it was oval. It was extended, so it was more rectangular than it was square. It was extended off to one side a little bit extra. And that is basically what we know today as the Hatim, or what the Prophet ﷺ referred to as Al-Hijr as well. The extra room, the extra area of the Kaaba, which is also known by the name of Al-Hatim. All right, where there's a little half wall, there's a boundary, and that's why when we do tawaf, one of the main things that your, you know, your imam or your sheikh or somebody whoever is giving you instruction on doing tawaf will tell you, make sure you don't cut through there. You have to go around there. Otherwise, if you cut through there, it doesn't count, because the entire baytullah, the Kaaba itself, is around the area of that hatim, and that's why there's such a motivation to pray with inside that little area. And there's such a scramble to get in there and pray in there because praying in there is as if you have prayed inside the Kaaba. So when now that when they're doing this reconstruction, they realize they don't have enough material, they don't have enough funds to be able to include the Hatim into the Kaaba. So they were forced to leave it out. 
They were forced to leave it out and make it a little bit shorter and smaller than it was supposed to be. And what they did was they just took a few stones and a few rocks and they put it around that boundary to be able to mark that this is also part of the original Kaaba. But what are we going to do? This is the lack of resources. And that's what occurred at that time. Along with that, because they had a lack of resources, the, the Beitullah, the Kaaba, Al-Ka'batul Sharifa, it originally used to have two doors. It originally used to have two doors. One on the east side and one on the west side. One on the east wall and one on the western wall. Alright? The door of the Kaaba that we're, we're used to today, Al-Multazam and the door of the Kaaba, that is on the eastern side. But there was also a door on the western side. And the reason for that was that when people would visit the Kaaba and wanted the blessings at the Kaaba, the way they would do so is that they would enter from one door and they would pray or do whatever they did in between. And then they would exit out the door on the west side. So it was created that way, it was made that way. Two doors were put there to keep the flow of traffic going. Enter into one side, exit out the other side. And there, that way there was a steady flow of traffic. But again, because of lack of resources, they were not able to put a door on the western side. And they ended up just leaving it a straight wall. And also part of that was because they wanted to deter, they basically wanted to limit the access that people had to the Kaaba because of the break-in. So this also served that purpose. If there was only one door, there's one door to go in, one door to get out, one door to watch, one door to guard. And also not that door is going to be five, six, seven feet above the ground. Alright, so not anybody can even enter into it undetected. They, whoever tries to go in there, everyone's going to know. So this is a little bit of detail as to what happened at that time. So the construction of the Kaaba wasn't complete. Instead of two doors, one door was put and it was made taller and the door was moved higher. Now they get to this point. Now, what do you do at this particular point? So they finished, they constructed the Kaaba up till this point until the very last thing that was left was the placing of the, the placing of the Al-Hajarul Aswad into its proper place. Now at this point in time, the, you know, another fight broke out. Alright? Another fight broke out. By the way, all the fighting in the masjid sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> Alright? Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Alright. It was too easy, it was right there, all right? So, so another fight broke out. And this time the, the fight or the argument was, who's going to put the Hajr al-Aswad back into its place? Obviously they had enough of a caste or enough of a social hierarchy at that time, unfortunately, which is obviously incorrect or wrong, that enough of a caste system or social hierarchy at that time to where whoever was going to be putting the Kaaba, uh, the Al-Hajr al-Aswad back into its place on the Kaaba, was going to be a leader of the tribe. But the fight was between the tribes as to who, which tribe's leader would be that individual that would get to put the Kaaba back into, put the Al-Hajr al-Aswad back into its original place. So this little bit of a fight started to break out, and arguments started to happen. Once again, you know, things deteriorated very quickly, very badly. You have to take, you know, the conditions, the social circumstances of that time into consideration to understand the nature of these people. And so they started fighting amongst each other, and, you know, somebody's saying, no, he's going to do it. They're saying, no, he's going to do it. No, our tribe leader's going to do it. No, your tribe's leader's not going to do it. And they're all going at it, and they're all fighting at it. They're all about to draw their swords. It's getting really messy. At that time, Abu Umayyah, Al-Mughirat ibn Abdullah, 
He was one of the elders of the Quraysh. He was one of the oldest men amongst the Quraysh. So he was very respected for his age and his wisdom, his seniority. So he says, everybody stop, everybody quiet. So of course, out of some semblance of respect for an older gentleman, they all got quiet. And he's like, look, we're rebuilding, we're reconstructing, we're renovating the house of God. And so why don't we leave this matter to God? And they said, and he says, that we'll pray here to the, to the Rabb of the Bait. We'll pray here now to the Rabb of the Bait that the next man that enters in through that door and we'll pray from the rub of, to the rub of the bait that he make it a very special person, the next person to enter in through that door. But whoever it is, is going to be the person who will put the Al-Hajr al-Aswad, not necessarily two narrations. One says that he will be the one to put it back into place. One narration says that he will be the intermediary. He will be the arbitrator the mediator, and he's the one who's going to make the decision and settle this matter for us as to who should be the one. So they all figured, they all said, all right, we don't have any other solution. This is getting pretty bad here right now. So what's the harm? Let's go ahead and go with his suggestion. Everybody went ahead and agreed. And they said, this is acceptable to us. The next guy who walks through that door is going to be the one who makes the decision as to what we're going to do here and how we're going to handle this situation. It said at that time that the next person to enter in, and this door that was designated was the, ba, was the door, the gate of the Kaaba of Masjid Haram at that time, known as Babu Bani Shayba. It was the door of Banu Shayba. And it said that the next, the next person who entered in through that door was none other than Muhammad Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He walks in through that door to worship and to, you know, pay his daily respects at the Kaaba, to worship, to meditate, to do whatever it is that, you know, the Prophet of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would do at that time. So he walks in through that door. And it said actually that when the Prophet of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam walked through that door, there was like a sigh of relief. One of the narrations actually says that amongst the, a lot of the leaders, there was like an audible sigh of relief. And they were very relieved to see Muhammad ibn Abdullah walk through that door because he was somebody that everybody liked, everybody respected. And because according to the majority narration, that they decided that the next person to walk through that door would be the mediator, they were very relieved that it was Muhammad ibn Abdullah because they knew him to be a man of great intelligence, a man of great honor and dignity and fairness. And, they, and, and it's also narrated that some of them said that, you know, how, that how perfect and how great this is, that the person who walked through the door was Al-Amin. That by that time he was literally no more people would identify him, more people would know, would know him and would refer to him as Al-Amin than they would even by his own name. By his own name, right? So they're like, oh man, you know, uh, uh, how grateful, how, how, how amazing is it that Al-Amin was the one to walk through that door. And so the Prophet ﷺ walks in, everybody's sitting there looking at him, big smile from here to here on their face, he's probably wondering what's going on, right? And so they tell the Messenger of Allah ﷺ that this is what's going on. We have this situation happening. This is the situation at hand. Al-Hajr al-Aswad is the last thing that remains. And so we couldn't decide. So we decided next person to walk through the door will decide for us and you're that next person. So the Prophet of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam 
gave it some thought. And the Prophet of Allah said, fine, one narration says that he asked for a big shawl or a sheet or something like that to be brought through, uh, to be brought to him. Um, one narration says that he actually removed his own shawl that he had wrapped around his upper body. He removed his own shawl because it was Al-Hajr al-Aswad. And he put it down on the ground. He asked for the Al-Hajr al-Aswad. And he placed it in the middle of the sheet of the shawl. And then he called for the leaders of all the different tribes to basically come up and hold a corner, hold the edge of the sheet. And all together, everybody lifted up. And they all together lifted it up. It's a very famous story. Most people have heard of it before. And, it was, and then they walked it over right next to the Kaaba, all the way and brought it all the way up to the level of where the Al-Hajr al-Aswad would be placed. And then when it was right there, right, right next to it, the Messenger of Allah with his own blessed hands, took the very blessed Al-Hajr al-Aswad into his hands and he put it into its proper place. Fit it into the proper place. Now as I mentioned last time, that when we did the earlier sessions on the birth of the Messenger we talked about the couple of miraculous incidents that occurred prior to his birth. The rediscovery of the well of Zamzam. We talked about the defeat, the miraculous defeat of the army of the elephants. Right? And we talked about how that was not just coincidence. Nothing is coincidence. Right? But that occurred not just as a coincidence, but that occurred as a telling, as a forthcoming of the uh, of a forthcoming sign of the birth of the Prophet of Allah. Similarly, this occurring a couple of years prior to the beginning, to the initiation of the divine revelation, again is not mere coincidence. But the Prophet of Allah first of all the renovation of the Kaaba taking place. Then the Prophet of Allah playing such a pivotal, vital role in the renovation of the Kaaba. And then the Messenger of Allah being the individual who with his blessed hands lifts the Al-Hajr al-Aswad and puts it back into its proper place. Again, this is not mere coincidence. But this again was by the divine decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bring the Prophet and his piety and his nobility and his honor and his dignity and his truthfulness and his trustworthiness to the center stage of his people. Why? Because he was very close to the beginning of the revelation and of the message. And so this was to again put the Prophet in the spotlight and to highlight above everything else the trust and the honor and the dignity that he held amongst his people. So that this is something that could not be denied from the Prophet ﷺ later on. And as we see later on, they could say whatever they wanted to say, but they would always be stuck at one place. Whenever they tried to claim, you know, they could, they could say whatever they wanted to say about the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, but any and all claims that they would make about the Prophet ﷺ being untruthful, or the Prophet ﷺ having a personal agenda, or the Prophet ﷺ being malicious or ill-willed in some way towards the people, that was something that absolutely it was an argument that held no ground because the man's reputation and the man's presence amongst his people was well known and they knew what he stood for and they knew what you know how he was viewed by his own people just a couple of years ago he was the man who solved this problem he was the same guy who was who everybody was okay with taking the Hajj al-Aswad in his own hands and putting it into its proper place and now a couple of years later how are you going to tell me that he's a terrible human being you can't claim that with a straight face. You can't claim that and, and take yourself seriously. Look yourself in the mirror by trying to claim that he's a terrible human being. You can't do that. 
Because he's the same guy that you had no problem with handling the most sacred thing that you have. And so this was by the divine decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is basically that story and that incident of the renovation of the Kaaba. Now, as I mentioned last week, I wanted to finish off this, this story and the narration about the renovation of the Kaaba. But I also wanted to take this as an opportunity because many of the books of Sirah, such as Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hisham, Ibn Kathir, many of the different scholars of Sirah, they also use this opportunity, they use this little um, chapter, or this particular point of the life of the Prophet ﷺ to discuss the overall history of the Kaaba. They use this as an opportunity to discuss the history of the Kaaba. So I mentioned last time that we would similarly use this as an opportunity to do so. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran says about the Kaaba, Baytullah, inna awwala baytin nasi mubarakan wa alamin fihi ayatun ibrahim wa man kana aminan. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the very first house that was established for the people on the face of this earth was the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Al-Makkah. Al-Makkatul Mukarramah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions a few qualities for, for the Kaaba. Number one, He mentions that Mubarakan. It was a source of blessing. Number two, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions Hudallil Alameen. That it was a source and a place of guidance for all humanity. Second, thirdly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Fihi ayatun bayinat. There are some very clear, evident signs there. From amongst them is Maqamu Ibrahim. Dhikrul khas ba'd al-aam. وَمَنْ دَخَلَهُ كَانَ آمِنًا And number four, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that whoever enters into it has attained safety and security. Alright, so these are a few qualities that Allah mentions. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us some of the rights of the Kaaba, the Baytullah upon us. وَلِلَّهِ عَلَى النَّاسِ حِجُّ الْبَيْتِ مَنْ إِسَّطَاعَ إِلَيْهِ سَبِيلًا That upon, you know, for the sake of Allah, obligated upon the people is to actually go and visit that house, visit the Kaaba, for whosoever is actually has the ability to do so. Somebody who has the ability, the capability, financially and physically, to visit the Kaaba, make the pilgrimage, should do so. It's an obligation upon the people. So these are some of the rights of the Kaaba that are mentioned in Surah Ali Imran, Surah number 3, Ayahs 96 and 97. Similarly, in the Sahihain, in Bukhari and Muslim, it's mentioned from Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu, that he says, I asked, I said to the Messenger of Allah, Messenger of Allah, Ya Rasulullah, ayyu masjidin wudi'a awwal? That which masjid was established first? And the Prophet of Allah sallallahu said, al-masjidul haram. The Baytullah, the Kaaba in Makkatul Mukarramah. قُلْتُ ثُمَّ أَيُّ Then I asked which was the next one. He said, الْمَسْجِدُ الْأَقْصَى the, the house of God in Jerusalem, al-Masjid al-Aqsa, Bayt al-Muqaddas. قُلْتُ كَمْ بَيْنَهُمَا I asked him, O Messenger of Allah, how much time elapsed between the establishment of these two, masad, these two masjids? قَالَ أَرْبَعُونَ سَنَةً He said, 40 years apart that they were established. So, Similarly, in the Sahihain, the Prophet of Allah is reported to have said, That this place of land, the Haram, the Kaaba, the Baytullah, that this is a place of land that Allah sanctified and Allah made it very, very sacred and holy the day that Allah created the heavens and the earth. And it will remain sacred by the by the sacredness of Allah, meaning it remains sacred by the sanction of God till the day of resurrection. 
So these are some of the narrations which talk about the sanctity, the sacredness of the Baytullah and when it was established. Now, when talking about when was the Kaaba first established? Now here there's a little bit of discussion. We know the Quranic, what the Quran basically points to is وَإِذْ يَرْفَعُ إِبْرَاهِيمُ الْقَوَاعِدَ مِنَ الْبَيْتِ When Ibrahim raised the foundations from the bait, from the house, he raised the foundation of the house. Ismail and his son Ismail also took part in this. Alright? So we know that. However, some of the scholars do point out that the language of the Quran is very interesting. It talks about raising the foundation. Raising the foundation of the Kaaba, which means that maybe the foundation was already in place. And based off of that, some of the scholars, Ibn Ishaq talks about this, Ibn Hisham talks about this, Imam Al-Bayhaqi has a lot of literature on this, that Imam Bayhaqi brings certain narrations where he says, for instance, from Abdullah bin Amr bin Al-As radiallahu anhumah, he says, كان البيت قبل الأرض بألفي سنتين he says that the earth, that the Baytullah, the Kaaba, was established even before the creation of the earth by two thousand years, and he's and then he references Abdullah bin Amr bin As, the Sahabi radiAllahu anhuma. He actually references the ayah of the Quran, وَإِذَا الْأَرْضُ مُدَّتْ. Then when the earth was spread out. So he again points to the language of the ayah and saying that the language of the ayah is very interesting. It talks about when the earth was stretched out, was spread out. So it's almost as if something was in a place and then you stretch it and spread it from there. So he says that the Baytullah, the Kaaba was the originating point of the earth and from there a min tahtihi maddan maddan. He says from the Baytullah and the Kaaba, the earth was completely pulled out and stretched out and so that was the originating point of the earth. However, many of the scholars say that the majority of such narrations which talk about the Kaaba and its origins which goes way way far back before the creation of the heavens and the earth the majority of them they say are from the Israeliyat they are narrations about which the Prophet of Allah told us لا نصدق ولا نكذب they are from the scriptures of the people of the book that we got from before us and the Prophet said we don't fully attest to their truth we don't confirm them nor do we deny them we don't confirm them, nor do we deny them. We say, Allahu Ta'ala a'lamu bis-sawab. Allah knows best. And we leave it at that. So similarly, this is the nature of some of these narrations. Another such narration, again from Abdullah bin Amr bin As, he says that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu said, بَعَثَهُ اللَّهُ جِبْرِيلِ إِلَىٰ آدَمَ وَحَوَّىٰ فَقَالَ لَهُمَا إِبْنِيَا لِي بَيْتًا That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the sent when Allah subhanahu wa Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Jibreel salam, to Adam and Hawa and he gave them the instruction that build a house for me, like build a place of worship. Jibreel. Jibreel salam, actually told them this is where the Kaaba needs to be located. So Adam salam, started digging up dirt and Hawa, his wife, Salamun alayha, was started actually kind of taking and moving the dirt over to the place and they basically built um, the Kaaba like this. Until when they finally completed it, Jibreel told them that, okay, this is good, this is fine. Then when they constructed the uh, Kaaba, Allahu Ta'ala ilayhi bihi. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded Adam salam, to actually do tawaf of it. And then he told to him, he said to him, Anta awwalu nas wa hadha awwalu bayt. That you are the first of humanity and this is the first of the houses of God, the first place of worship. Then he goes on to say, Then centuries passed, generations passed. 
until Nuh came and visited the, the Kaaba. Then centuries and generations passed. And then finally, until Ibrahim came and actually raised the foundation of it. And again, there's some skepticism among some of the scholars about the uh, validity of some of these narrations. One other narration says that when Adam salam did the first hajj, meaning did the first tawaf of it, then he met the angels and the malaika. They said, Burra nusukuka ya Adam. They basically, you know how we congratulate someone, we say, Hajjum mabrur? Right, so they congratulate him, said, May God accept your worship, O Adam. Laqad hajjajna qablaka bi amin. And then they said that we actually did, did Hajj, we did Tawaf of the Kaaba 2,000 years before you. All right, it's a little bit of trash talk there. All right, so, but again, it, it goes on to say the same thing though, not all of the scholars accept some of these narrations. Similarly, Urwat ibn Zubayr radiallahu anhuma, another Sahabi, the student of Aisha radiallahu anha says, مَا مِن نَبِيٍ إِلَّا وَقَدْ حَجَّ الْبَيْتَ That there was not a single prophet, but he actually did Hajj of the Bayt. He actually visited the Al-Ka'bah. Alright, what the nature of that exactly is, Wallahu ta'ala a'lamu bisawab, again Allah knows best. So these are some of the narrations. Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu anhu, he was asked, سَأَلَ رَجُلٌ عَلِيًّا رَضِيَ عَنْهُ عَنْ قَوْلِهِ تَعَالَىٰ إِنَّ أَوَّلَ بَيْتُ وُضِعَ لِلنَّاسِ Somebody asked Ali radiallahu anhu about this ayah, that the very first house that was established was the Kaaba. He's, and then the person asked him, So the person was taking a little bit literally. He said, was this the first house, generally speaking, like the first house ever built on the face of the earth? He said, لَا لَكِنَّهُ أَوَّلُ بَيْتٌ وُضِعَ فِيهِ الْبَرَكَ that He says that, no, but this is the first house that barakah and blessing and guidance and signs of God were put into. Alright, so he says, no, it's the first place of worship that was established on the face of the earth. And some say that, no, what the questioner meant by asking Ali radiallahu anhu was, was this the first place of worship? And, Ibra- and Ali radiallahu anhu is taking the other opinion, not the minority opinion that I've shared with you that it was established from the time of Adam alayhi salam, but rather Ali radiallahu anhu is taking the minority opinion, the, minority, uh, the majority position, and he's saying, no, 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 there were other masajid, there were other houses of worship that were established prior to the Kaaba, but this was very special because barakah, blessing, the signs of God, maqam Ibrahim, the station of Ibrahim, whoever entered into it was safe and secure. All of this is what was special about the Kaaba. All these factors came together in the Kaaba first and foremost, and that is what gives the Kaaba its distinction. So, this is a little bit about the Kaaba before the time of the Prophet of Allah It then goes on to say that it talks a li- this narration of Ali radiallahu anhu talks a little bit about when Ibrahim alayhi salam is constructing the Kaaba with his son Ismail alayhi salam. So it talks about how they built the Kaaba and hajar until they finally reached a place where the Al Hajr al Aswad goes. The black stone, the Hajr al-Aswad where it goes. They reached that point because when they were given the instruction on how build, how to build the Kaaba. They were told by Allah that create, some, create like a little place, like a little recess where a stone can fit. So they created it, so they created the place, the recess for the, uh, the Al-Hajr al-Aswad, but they didn't know it was the Al-Hajr al-Aswad. They were just told this is part of the design of the Kaaba, that it needs to have that place for the black stone or for a stone. 
So when they finally reach that place, Ibrahim salam says to Ismail that, uh, that go and find me a stone that I can put in its place. Go and find me a stone that, I, that we can put here because in the design that we were told, the instruction that we were told, a stone needs to fit here. فَالْتَمَسَ حَجَرًا So Ismail alayhi salam goes and finds a stone that fits the size of the recess. حَتَّى أَتَاهُ بِهِ And he brings it to him. فَوَجَ الْحَجْرَ الْأَسْوَدْ قَدْ رُكِّبَ So then he comes back and he sees that the الْحَجْرَ الْأَسْوَدْ is already there in that little spot. And Ismail alayhi salam has brought a stone to put it and he sees the الْحَجْرَ الْأَسْوَدْ there. So he says to his father, مِنْ أَيْنَ لَكَ هَذَا يَا He says, where did you find this, O oh father? So Ibrahim salam says that Ja'abihi Jibreel That Jibreel salam brought this from the sky and he completed the construction of the Kaaba for us. He brought this from the sky as a gift and he placed it here in its proper place, in its proper spot. It goes on to say, a long time passed after Ibrahim salam, and the Kaaba started to crumble, started to deteriorate, and started to fall down. So another people who later inhabited the area and the region, the Amaliqa, they reconstructed, renovated the Kaaba and made it proper again. Then again, after many centuries passing, it started to crumble and fall apart again. And the people of Jurhum, who was another race and a tribe of people that lived there, they basically reconstructed it. Then it again started to fall apart. And then the Quraysh were the next people to, create, to do a major renovation of the Kaaba. And that was of course with the involvement from the Prophet of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Excuse me. And the Prophet of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam took part in that uh, renovation of the Kaaba. So this brings us to what we've discussed so far. To the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now to talk a little bit about the, the post, you know, the, after the Prophet of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Um, to talk about that period of the history of the Kaaba and what exactly transpired and what occurred at that time after the Prophet of Allah So it said that the Prophet of Allah informed the Sahaba it's actually a narration of Aisha radiallahu anha in which she says that during Fatih Makkah when they you know, cleaned out the Kaaba basically and they, they purified it and they started establishing the salah and the prayer and the proper form of worship there at the Kaaba that the Prophet of Allah ﷺ told her about the original construction of the Kaaba. So the Prophet ﷺ shared with her what the Kaaba originally used to look like and what was the shape and what was the construction of the Kaaba originally. And so among some of the things that he told her was that it used to have two doors um, and the fact that the Hatim, which is now outside of the actual construction of the Kaaba, was originally a part, was included within the structure and the construction of the Kaaba. And he told her some of this stuff. And he says, Alam tara anna qawmaka, and this is a hadith that is both in Bukhari and Muslim. He says, He says, he tells her what the Kaaba should have been like, should have had two doors and should have included the Hatim. And then he says, but realize and understand that your people, because she's from the Quraysh as well, so he goes, your people, they didn't have enough funds to do the construction of the Kaaba fully and properly, and that's why you find it in a slightly different shape and form today. And then he tells her something very interesting. 
He says, وَلَوْلَا حِدْثَانُ قَوْمِكِ بِكُفْرٍ لَقَنَطُّ الْكَعْبَةِ وَجَعَلْتُ لَهَا بَابًا شَرْقِيًّا وَبَابًا غَرْبِيًّ وَأَدْخَلْتُ فِيهَا الْحِجَرِ And then he says that if your people weren't so, you know, new in Islam, that's one way to translate it. Meaning he was saying that if they hadn't been in kufr so recently, meaning they weren't such new converts, such recent converts to Islam, and what that means is that they haven't really had time to learn and understand and kind of change a lot of their different, you know, perceptions and some of their ideas. They haven't been able to fully come around yet. And it, it would be too drastic, it would be too sudden of a move. It would actually have a traumatizing effect on your people. So if it wasn't too traumatic for your people, he says to Aisha radiallahu anha, he says, I would have actually done a complete reconstruction of the Kaaba. The Prophet says, at Fatih Makkah, I would have done a complete reconstruction of the Kaaba, and I would create an eastern door and a western door for the Kaaba, and I would once again include the Hatim into the construction of the Kaaba. So the Prophet ﷺ said this, Fisahihain, this is Muttafaq Ali mentioned in Bukhari and Muslim. Now, of course, you know, mashallah, Imam Zia is here, so uh, I feel, uh, you know, unqualified saying this in, uh, with him here, but just as an observation that the scholars make based off of this narration of the Prophet ﷺ, because one of the things when talking about the seerah that we've, uh, you know, kept a regular habit and a practice of, is that whenever we talk about these incidents and occasions from the seerah, we don't just talk about the story, but we try to extract some of the lessons and we take out some of the points that the scholars use to establish some of the fundamentals, the principles of our religion and our deen. One of the principles that is extracted from this particular point is that sensitivity to a people and their customs and their traditions and their culture and where they're coming from and keeping in mind where they're coming from and what type of a transformation they're going through is very, very important and it's actually part of the sunnah and a part of the seerah. That you're supposed to be sensitive to people's situations. That doesn't mean we compromise the religion. It doesn't mean that we change the ruling within the religion. But at times, if something is not absolutely fundamentally a core part of the deen and the religion, then we need to be sensitive to people's situations. This is one of the things that, you know, a lot of times growing up and knowing, you know, I, I had one of my best friends, a really, really good near dear friend of mine, he actually accepted Islam when we were in middle school together. And we grew up together. And so this is something that I saw him personally go through. Because back, you know, then there was um, sometimes a lot less sensitive, there was a lot less, you know, sensitivity towards you know, the situation of somebody who's just learning their deen and is new to the deen and still trying to acquaint themselves with everything that's going on within the deen from you know, changing of name to no, 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 you can only pray in Arabic but I don't know Arabic yet and you can only read the, uh, the prayer stuff in Arabic but I don't know any Arabic yet okay, but you can only pray in Arabic so do I not pray until then? what do I do? and so there was even a time and a phase I remember and I was a kid myself so I didn't have the ability to be able to help him out in any way but I remember him being literally being confused honestly, sincerely. To a born Muslim, this sounds preposterous, it sounds silly. But you have to understand, to some people, this is a reality for them. Where he wasn't sure if he should even pray or not. Took Islam, accepted Islam, took the shahada, and he's not sure if he should pray or not because he doesn't know Arabic. Right? So there's so many different things that sometimes we're not sensitive to about people and their situation, their circumstances. So the scholars use this hadith and this instance from the life of the Prophet ﷺ that the Prophet ﷺ is clearly telling Aisha, 
Somebody that he knows can, can grasp the situation. Aisha radiallahu anha was a genius. Alright? She was a muhaddisa, a faqiha, a muftiya. Right? So he's actually explaining it to her. He's saying, look, this is the way the Kaaba was. This is the way the Kaaba should be. And this is what I'd like to do, but I can't do it because your people won't be able to handle it. So I'm going to leave it be. And the Prophet ﷺ did not make those changes to the Kaaba at that time. So very interesting perspective from the seat of the Prophet ﷺ. Now, what happens afterwards is, Abdullah bin Zubayr radiallahu anhuma, who later on was you know, in charge of Makkah, he was the Mas'ul of Makkah, right? the mayor of Makkah if you will. When he was the mayor of Makkah, he knowing because Abdullah, Abdullah bin Zubayr radiallahu anhuma, one of his main teachers, was Aisha radiallahu anha, his aunt. So knowing this from his aunt and his teacher, Aisha radiallahu anha, umul mu'mineen, he decided to fulfill that, you know, that, 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 to basically carry out that, what the Prophet had expressed, and he did a complete reconstruction renovation of the Kaaba. And what he did was he made two doors and two gates for it. He included the Hatim into the construction of the Kaaba and completely redid the Kaaba. What happened after that was when Marwan bin Abdul Malik, you know, who was basically in a fight, or, or I'm sorry, Hajjaj bin Yusuf, who was in a fight with Abdullah bin Zubair on behalf of the king, the, the Khalifa at that time, Abdul Malik uh, bin Marwan, he defeats Abdullah bin Zubair, and actually Abdullah bin Zubair radiallahu anhuma was killed, he was shaheed, he was martyr. And then he reclaims control of the Kaaba of Mecca. He actually writes back to the king, Abdul Malik bin Marwan, and says that I've regained control of the Kaaba and of Mecca. And Abdullah bin Zubair, Ibn Zubair had made these, these changes. Would you like me to make the changes back? And Abdul Malik says, yes, not knowing full knowledge that Abdullah bin Zubair was only doing that which he learned from Aisha, which she was told by the Prophet of Allah sallallahu so not knowing that, they figured this was Abdullah Zubair doing something crazy at the Kaaba. And they didn't get along, so they didn't, I guess, have a lot of husnudan with each other. I mean, after all, they had killed the guy. So he says, yeah, go ahead and redo the Kaaba the way it's supposed to be, the way it was. So now they reconstruct the entire Kaaba. They bring everything down, they put it back up, they board up the other door on the western side. Now there's again one door on the eastern side. They remove the Hatim from the original construct of the Kaaba, put the little border back around it, completely redo it. Years later, when the king or the Khalifa at that time was Al-Mansur, right, he actually consults with Imam Malik. Imam Udar al-Hijra, the Alim of Medina, Imam Malik. He consults with him and he says that, you know, we've now come to realize that there's this, this, this hadith in place. And that the Prophet actually expressed that that's what he would have liked to have done with the Kaaba, but he didn't. And Abdullah, Zubayr, Abdullah bin Zubayr radiallahu anhum had done exactly what the Prophet had expressed. But then Abdul Malik bin Marwan came along and Hajjaj came along and redid everything. So now that we know that that hadith is in place, you're the Imam, you're the big Sheikh, you're the Grand Mufti, you're the scholar. If you tell me that you think that we should reconstruct the Kaaba in the way that the Prophet had expressed, I can have it done. We got the funds, we got the people, we got what we need. I can do it. I just need the word from you. I need the fatwa from you. Imam Malik rahimahullah at that time told the king, he told him, Inni akrahu an He said, don't. 
Leave it be. Because the Prophet left it. That obviously shows that that was also okay with the Messenger of Allah He says, leave it be because I don't want kings to come along later on and turn the Kaaba into a toy. I don't want kings to be territorial about the Kaaba. That later on another king comes along and he says, no, I didn't like this king, so now I'm going to go back and redo it again. Another king comes along and says, I'm going to show you what's up and I'm going to redo the Kaaba. And next thing you know, this is going on nonstop. So he says, leave it be, leave it alone. It's the house of God, for God's sake, leave it alone. All right, don't mess around with it, don't toy around with it and leave it. All right, the Messenger of Allah left it, there was a divine wisdom and a prophetic hikmah in that, leave it be. And so then the Kaaba was left according to that. Until today, the Baytullah, the Kaaba, it has one door. Until today, the Hatim is not included within the actual construction, the enclosure of the Kaaba itself. But that little border remains around it. And it has been left like that till today. All right. Some more details about the Kaaba and its expansion and some of what we see today. You know, today we see that uh, one thing that is a tradition at the Kaaba is to put the cloth over the Kaaba, the covering of the Kaaba. The kiswa of the Kaaba is a big tradition and it's a big deal, right? When did that start? When did that first happen? The first one, very interestingly, the first one to actually put the kiswa, the cover on the Kaaba and start that tradition was none other than Hajjaj bin Yusuf. All right. We don't have a lot of time to talk about this here. Maybe we'll talk about it some other time. But Hajjaj bin Yusuf is typically known to be a pretty terrible guy. All right, he was he was basically he's been described in books of history to be a mass murderer. Um, you know his the amount of people he executed and killed or ordered to be executed and killed ranges up into the hundreds, possibly even the thousands. Um, there were m multiple Sahaba. You know, uh, or a, a rather a couple of Sahaba that he actually had a hand in killing, like Abdullah bin Zubayr radiallahu anhumah. You know, some of the great scholars of the Tabi'un, like Sa'id bin Jubair, um, you know, rahimahullah. You know, he, he, in front of him directly, had them executed directly in front of him. So he's typically known to be a pretty bad person. Like he'd done a lot of terrible things, but goes to show you, you know, you never know what somebody you know, is capable of or what somebody could bring to the table. Hajjaj bin Yusuf was the first one to actually you know, formally have a covering of the Kaaba made and that has remained a tradition in the Muslim Ummah till today. And that's one of the ways through which we show respect to the Baytullah, to the Kaaba al-Sharifa. Similarly, uh, some of the books of history also tell us about the expansion of the Masjid al-Haram as we see it today that the first one to actually expand the Masjid al-Haram was Umar al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. He was the first one. So the masjid now that's all around the Kaaba, the first one to actually start expanding that masjid to accommodate the growing ummah that was coming for Hajj and Umrah and to worship at the Kaaba, the first one to accommodate them was none other than Umar al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. He basically, all the houses that were immediately around the Kaaba, he bought them from their owners, compensated them very, very properly, very well, above and beyond what their property was worth so that he could expand the area of the masjid around the Kaaba and accommodate all the hujjaj and all the worshippers. And then later on, at the time of Abdullah Uthman radiallahu anhu actually then purchased more homes and expanded the Kaaba even further out. And then uh, Ibn Zubayr radiallahu anhu, um, 
he, when he had that whole reconstruction of the Kaaba done, he had a lot of, you know, different decorations and he had a lot of very ornate things put on and around the Kaaba. So even when we go there today and we see very, very nice, beautiful construction and we see elaborate decorating of the Kaaba and Masjid Haram, again, that's something that the Sahaba radiallahu anhum did do and they saw it as a sign of respect and there's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. All right, there is this much that, you know, the Prophet of Allah did talk about how when people will simply adorn something but not actually get the point of it. Like the Prophet I'm talking about people who will very beautifully recite the Quran, but it won't have any impact on their hearts, it won't change their lives. So there is that much that we, there's always a balance. And the Sahaba anhum didn't have to worry about that balance because they were the Sahaba anhum. they were exemplary people. So when they beautified the Kaaba a little bit, they beautified the Kaaba a little bit, but their worship and their their dedication and devotion to Allah and their worship at the Kaaba was a very high quality. Alright? So their decorations were far behind their actual dedication. Their decoration was far less than their dedication. Whereas today it's a lot in the reverse. We have a lot more decoration than we do dedication. And so definitely um, it requires us to exert ourselves and try to implement more, you know, dedication and khushu in our salah and ibadat and attendance of the masjid. That should be a goal. But just as a rule, as an issue of fiqh, as a mas'ala, as a rule, it is, there's nothing wrong or inappropriate or haram in any way, shape or form about decorating in creating a big, nice, beautiful masjid. Why? Because it's something that the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, the Sahaba anhum, engaged in. They did this, they expanded the masjid, they beautified the masjid, and they do the deen a lot better than we do. So we take that from their action as a fatwa, that it is permissible. And all the Sahaba that were alive at that time had no issue, had no problem, and had no qualms or complaints with it. So inshallah, we'll go ahead and stop here for this week's session, and next week we'll pick up and continue on from here, inshallah. جزاكم الله خيرا سبحان الله وبحمده سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد ولا اله الا انت نستغفرك ونتوب اليك